Good morning, everyone. I'm so glad you're here with us in our online worship. But kind of be honest with me this morning. How many of you are still in your pajamas? I mean, just raise your hand. You know, I can see you, you know, your camera is on and you're still in your sweatpants. I mean, you could make a little effort, don't you think? At least, you know, brush your teeth before joining in worship. I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the least you could do? Oh, I'm just kidding. I don't care if you brush your teeth or shower or whatever, but your family or roommates might. That's a big part of what the social distancing is all about, learning how to get along with others while in confined spaces. I've heard a situation compared to that of the crew of a submarine, you know, under the ocean, or scientists isolated for months at a research lab in Antarctica, or sailors on a ship out in the middle of the sea. I've heard that one way to define the word fellowship is that it's a bunch of fellas in the same ship. And in our present pandemic crisis, there is a sense that even though we're physically apart, we do have real fellowship. We are all in the same boat. We are in this together as a church family and as a community of hope and faith. We are all in this together. And that's part of what we're going to look at in today's scripture passage about the Apostle Paul's shipwreck experience from Acts 27 that was read a few minutes ago. A bunch of fellas and ladies in the same ship. We are in week two of our message series called Surviving the Storm, the Voyage of Faith in Troubled Times. And we're looking at some of the great storm stories of the Bible because often people encounter God while the wind and the waves are high. And as I mentioned last week, there's a three-step pattern to these storm stories in the Bible. Three steps. There's the storm, there's a human response to the storm, and then there's stillness, a calm that's caused by God. So it's storm response and stillness. And we'll see that pattern in today's story. And with that three-step movement, or better yet, maybe over and above that three-step movement, is a really important biblical and theological concept called God's providence. God's providence. That was one of the favorite words in the vocabulary of the Puritan farmers who founded this church in 1737, New Providence. The church was named New Providence for decades before the town took its name. Providence is a powerful word. It's a loving word. Providence is the belief in the overarching care and sovereignty of God, that no matter how much confusion or chaos there seems to be on ground level, God has a heavenly view. He sees it all. He knows it from the beginning all the way to the end already. It's the difference between being in a maze and being above the maze, being able to see all the turns, the dead ends, the false trails, but also able to see and direct the right path to the end. God has got Earth's history all mapped out, and he is leading and guiding history and human life toward its culmination when Jesus returns in all his glory. God's providence oversees all of that. And while we have great freedom of choice and action within the smaller things, within the maze, God is the one who guarantees the final outcome based on his own will, his own power, and his mercy. The best example I can give about providence is that it's like your GPS. Once the end of the journey is all plugged in, the path to that destination could go a lot of different directions, but you will still get there. Imagine the GPS has control over your car, which it will in the future when we have self-driving vehicles. The GPS is going to get you to that destination one way or another. The route might seem chaotic to you, might not be the route that you thought you'd take, but you will get there to your destination in the end. 
That's how God's providence works in your life and mine. God has a plan, and he will get you to your final destination. That's the great promise of that verse from Philippians 1, chapter 6, where Paul says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In Reformed theology, we call that the preservation or the perseverance of the saints. God will com complete his work in your life no matter what. Remember, God already knows every detail of your life. God knew it the moment of your birth before it happened. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And he already knows the moment of your death. The moment of your birth and the moment of your death are all contained within his providence. Psalm 139 verse 16 says this so well. Your eye saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In other words, you won't live one day longer than God already knows, and you won't live one day shorter than that either. That's providence. You won't live one day longer than God already knows, and you won't live one day shorter than that either. He knows your beginning. He also knows your end. And that should either scare the bejeebers out of you or give you a great sense of comfort. God already knows you from the day of your birth all the way to the day of your death, and he will walk with you all the way to that day, through that day, and on into eternity. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me uh, give you a practical example of God's providence. I can honestly say that if it wasn't for God's providence, I wouldn't be here today as your pastor. God has worked in history to get me to where I am today. I want to show you something. This is, uh, I want to read you something out of this book. It's a historical timeline of the city of Gloucester, Massachusetts, uh, that famous fishing and lobster, uh, lobster restaurant destination on the North Shore of Boston. This is from, dated from September 17th, 1781. Nathaniel Allen survives 261 days in the schooner America, lost at sea off the George's Bank. Nathaniel Allen. That's my wife's, Donna's great, great, great grandfather. He was really great. I think that was the right number of greats. Nathaniel Allen, at age 21, was one of eight crew members in a merchant schooner called the America. In December of 1780, they were on their return voyage from the Caribbean, going back to Gloucester with a load of sugar and rum, when they ran into a hurricane off the coast of North Carolina. The storm lasted for three weeks. By the end of the storm, they'd lost their masts, all their sails, all their rigging, and their rudder. They were literally just adrift in the Atlantic Ocean from December 31, 1780, until they were picked up by a passing British ship on September 17, 1781. 261 days. More than nine months adrift on the ocean. You talk about social distancing. Eight of them trapped on this wrecked ship out in the middle of the Atlantic. And they only had provisions for two weeks. No grocery stores, no food delivery, no Uber Eats, and no Wi-Fi. Nine months on the open ocean in a wrecked ship, just bobbing like a cork. Imagine the sheer boredom, but mixed with absolute panic, fatigue and fear, somehow merging together with, with faith and the will to endure. They were able to survive for nine months. 
no way to sail, no way to navigate. All they could do was throw out a sea anchor to keep the bow into the wind so the next big wave didn't swamp the crippled ship. Talk about a daily battle just to survive. Talk about fellowship. They had to work together. They were forced to work together, forced to get along with each other because their very survival depended on it. Some of the seed deliverance narratives of colonial America record that shipwreck crews often went crazy. The isolation trauma was just too much of them. Others actually descended into cannibalism or simply lost their wills to survive. But not the crew of Nathaniel Allen's ship. For them, it was a daily uh, battle against despair and isolation, fatigue and hunger, and worst of all, thirst. They went through their fresh drinking water in only a couple of weeks and thereafter had to rely on catching rainwater. Here's what Nathaniel Allen wrote in his journal after their cook, uh, Samuel Edmund, died of thirst. He writes, During showers we drank all we could catch, but at one time we were entire out for three weeks. Then it was that we felt the keenest our awful condition. Death stared us in the face, and we knew not who would be his next victim. Our only hope was in God. Their only hope was in God. That's not a throwaway line. Without faith, without faith that God was still at work, without faith that God would get them through, that's when people lose the will to survive. Survival is a mental game first and foremost. Then it's physical. It's a mental, it's a spiritual game. When people lose hope, when people lose faith, that's when the game is lost. With all the awful circumstances and suffering around them, Nathaniel and the rest of the crew, they held on to God's providence. And God's providence, and through God's providence, they were rescued. And that's a great story too. I wish I had time to tell it. I'm about three chapters into turning his story into a novel, and, and that's what I've been doing in my spare time these weeks. But if it wasn't for God's providence in rescuing them, then Nathaniel Allen would have died at sea. His whole lineage would never have been born, including Donna. And if I hadn't met and married her, I'll probably be some homeless guy hanging out at Penn Station. I mean, who knows where my life would have gone? But certainly I would not have had the same circumstances and guidance from the Lord that brought me here. So my point in all this is that the providence of God should either scare the bejeebers out of you or give you a great sense of comfort. The providence of God can bring comfort because that's what we see as the main point in the story of Paul's shipwreck. It's a depiction of his solid confidence in the overarching care and protection of the Lord. This is such an unusual part of the Bible because Dr. Luke, who, who wrote the book of Acts, was such a careful historian. He wrote the Acts of the Apostles as a companion piece to the gospel that bears his name. The two books go together. And the amount of detail that he actually puts into these chapters, 26, 27, and 28, about how sailors navigated the Mediterranean Sea actually gives more historical insight into how ancient sailors plied their trade than all other ancient manuscripts of the same time period put together. That's how detailed he is. The beginning of Acts 27 reads like a captain's log. It starts off with a listing of passengers, the routes they took, the landmarks they passed, the weather problems they encountered. But it's also a tale of a spiritual battle between faith and fear. There are three key things I want us to remember from this passage. First, the story actually starts back in Acts 21, if you want to get the whole picture. Paul was arrested in Judea for preaching about faith in Christ, and it's impossible for him to obtain any kind of justice or a fair hearing in the courts of Judea. So Paul reveals to the court that he's actually a Roman citizen. 
And that's kind of his bonus card. He's a Roman citizen, which means he has certain rights that supersede the Judean court. As a Roman citizen, he has the right to appeal any decision to Rome. Well, his accusers were just kind of happy to get rid of him. So they sent him off under Roman guard to make the long sea voyage to Rome. Paul believed God had a purpose for him to go to Rome and to preach the gospel to the most powerful people in the most powerful city of his day. That's first. Paul believed God had a purpose for him. So they're on their way, zigzagging their way across the Mediterranean Sea. They switch ships a couple of times. Finally, they are on a big cargo vessel, about half a football field in length. It's got a huge crew and passengers totaling 276 people. That's a big boat. And then they hit the mother of all storms. It's so bad they can't even eat for two weeks. Either from fear or the violent rocking of the waves and wind just makes them, you know, just would make them throw up whatever they tried to swallow. Two weeks. And so they are starting to panic. They're throwing everything overboard to lighten the ship, but it's not enough. And then Paul speaks up and he says this in verse 22. He says, But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is the second thing. Here is the providence of God at work. God promises Paul that he will stand trial before Caesar. He will make it to Rome. I know it looks like the ship is sinking, but God is going to make that happen. It might appear like everything's in chaos, and Paul is going to go down with the ship and never be heard from again, but that is not God's plan, and God is bigger than the biggest wave. Paul is in the center of God's will, and that is the safest place for him to be. And the Lord gave Paul this additional promise, assuring him that God would preserve the lives of all the crew if they listened to Paul and did not abandon the ship until they reached the island. The crew and all the passengers, <clears throat> they would have to trust in God's protection too, whether they wanted to or not. They would have to set their fear aside, and they would have to put their trust in Paul's God and God's providence. God made Paul a promise, and Paul and all the people on the ship, they were going to have to trust in that promise of God's providence. Here's the third thing. They will all make it, but there will be loss. There will be loss. The situation isn't like last week's scripture, if you remember about Jesus in the back of the boat. When Jesus spoke peace, the waves immediately flattened, total stillness. No, this storage raged on. There was no change in the weather, no easing of the wind, no calming of the waves, no change in the outward circumstances. The storm was still as violent as ever. But there was a, an island, Malta. And as they struggled to get near, they hit the shoals, hit a sandbar, and the ship uh, simply broke apart, cracked open like an egg, sank like a stone. The entire cargo was lost. Now don't rush past that. We're told back in verse 11 that the owner of the ship was on board. He just saw his whole life's work, his whole life's savings, everything that he had, sink to the bottom of the sea. The ship and all the cargo, gone. This was a very expensive loss for him. 
And for the passengers and crew, whatever possessions they had, that all went to the bottom. It was for no fault of their own. It wasn't a punishment from God. It was a storm. But the owner, the crew, the passengers, they all lost everything except their lives. They jumped overboard finally, grabbed onto floating debris, sort of dog paddled their way onto the beach. And in the way the chapter ends, it says this in verse 44. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So Paul believed in God's purpose for his life. He trusted in God's providence to make that happen. And though it did happen, there was significant loss along the way. See any parallels to our situation today? A lot of things we could consider. Here's a couple. First of all, watch the weather because it affects everyone alike. Within God's providential care, there's a room, there's room for human decision that can make our path easier or harder, more in line with God's desires or misaligned with God's will. And the decisions we make do have real consequences, but weather, life's larger circumstances, they happen and they affect everyone regardless of our good intentions or our good behavior. If a company decides to downsize, that's going to affect Christians and non-Christian workers in the exact same way. If the government shuts down the economy, some stores will not recover, and those can be Christian owners and not Christian owners. We should try and do our best to be ready for such changes and do as best as we can to adapt to the changes that we see around us in the most helpful ways possible. But sometimes we just have to ride out the storm just like everybody else. I mean, the question I ask is, why would God let the Apostle Paul experience such serious difficulty, go through so many problems when Paul is doing the right thing, when he's, the, when he's obviously in the center of God's will? He's on his way to Rome where the Lord wants him to be. Paul's being obedient. He's moving right in line with God's purposes, but his circumstances are terrible, excruciatingly difficult. The winds are against him. Everything seems to go wrong on this voyage. God who controls the winds and the waves God surely could have made it easier for Paul to get to Rome. Why doesn't God make it easier? That's the question which confronts us all in our current situation. Why doesn't God make it easier? Well, is it that? Why is that? Even when we're doing what we think is in line with God's will for us, why does God let us face such problems? It looks like chaos, looks like it shouldn't be happening, but that's our ground level view. God sees his plan from above, and he asks us to trust him and carry on. Part of a response to the social distancing and all the rest has to be an inner confidence that God knows what he's doing, that God is working his purposes out, and that may involve some suffering and loss on our part. Problems cancel. I know that hurts. Can't be with friends or family, especially family in the hospital or nursing home or a family member who dies. I mean, that hurts. Jobs lost, paychecks disappear, savings depleted. That hurts. There is real loss going on. And Christians are not exempt from that. We are all fellows in this larger ship, even with all the people who are not Christian. We are part of this larger community, a larger ship. And we all share in this loss together. Paul's fate and the fate of the whole crew, they were tied together. They shared the loss, but they all made it. Second thing. Don't overload the boat. Sometimes boats sink just because they're simply overloaded. We must know our limitations. And I'm reminded of that terrible tragedy, the sinking of a Korean ferry back in April of 2014. The ferry was way overloaded, 476 passengers and crew. 
And when it went down, 304 people drowned, including many high school students. It was a terrible tragedy that 100% could have been prevented. A lot of suffering can be avoided if we don't overload the boat. One of the good things about our social distancing is that it gives us now time to consider where maybe we've taken on too much in our lives. Maybe we were overloaded. Too much busyness, too many sports, too many activities, too much investment of our time and energy and finances and emotions in all the wrong things, too much spending, too much credit card debt. No wonder we often feel like we're sinking. No wonder we're riding low in the water. Our social distancing runs right up against the way most of us had been living our lives. And maybe we can recognize a new way to live that must go counter to this frantic culture. Maybe we will live differently. Maybe we will restore some sanity because too many people are exceeding their capacity, clinging to stuff we don't really need, afraid to give it up. Imagine holding on to a chest of gold when thrown into the water. It's only going to take you to the bottom faster. During this time, many folks are fighting for their survival emotionally in their marriages, their families, their careers, and often because it's like they're going through a type of withdrawal, almost like drug addicts or people trying to kick caffeine. There's this pain, there's this sense of withdrawal going on in our lives because things have suddenly changed, withdrawal from things that were maybe not the best things for us, and now you've actually got a chance to look at that and maybe recapture what you want your life to be. Maybe there are some things that you do that you, you need to throw overboard to lighten the load. Some things you jettison from your life and you won't return to them once this crisis phase is over. Don't miss out on this chance to reconfigure what you want your future life to be. And third, the final thing, pause to pray. Pause to pray. Paul recognized his absolute dependence on God and he prayed. Remember how I said all these storm stories follow the pattern of frantic, of storm, frantic activity, and then stillness. But Paul didn't follow that pattern. The crew members did. The storm, then their frantic activity. But with Paul, there was no frantic activity on his part. No running around the deck like a chicken with its head cut off. For Paul, prayer was not an afterthought. It was not his final desperate option. For Paul, prayer was the connecting thread that bound him to God. The storm exposes the futility of their own efforts. And when you start to feel overwhelmed, make prayer your first response, not your last resort. Prayer is your lifeline to the Lord. It's what connects you to Christ. He understands you, knows your pain and your confusion, your fears, your sadness. And when you pause to pray, you can overcome despair with prayer. You can overcome despair with prayer. When life overwhelms, you pray to the one who is in charge. Stand firmly on the promises of Scripture, of God's providential care for you, his providential mercy over you. You do not fight the wind and the waves alone. So pause to pray. And then get some other people to pray with. That's key, too. We need to pull together when life feels like it's fallen apart. Be that fellowship to each other. Phone a friend. Pray with your small group. Call your deacon or one of the staff. Find others who will support you in prayer. The devil just loves to stir up trouble and fear, loves to keep you alone, but his days are numbered. Claim Romans 16:20. What a great verse. The God who brings peace will soon defeat Satan and give you power over him. Wow. How's that for a promise from God? The God who brings peace will soon defeat Satan and give you power over him. Paul prayed and the lives of 275 people were saved. Paul was exposed to the same peril as the others, yet he found strength from God. 
God didn't take him away from the storm. That's important to notice. Paul was in it just like everyone else. Paul was just as wet and windblown and hungry as everyone else. The danger seemed just as real. The waves were just as high. The darkness just as bleak. Everything was exactly the same except God gave him an encouraging word through prayer. A source of confidence that the others did not have. God didn't lessen the wind, didn't lower the waves. Instead, he gave Paul an inner reassurance, a resilience, an inner peace that enabled Paul to stand out from the rest of them and be different. This is what the Christian faith is all about. It's a way of discovering God's hidden resources for your life, his presence, his peace, which makes it possible for you to live and to act and to react differently from how you would without his presence. There's nothing more frightening than a storm at sea in the dark of night. The wind can scream like a demon. Panic can be very real. So watch the weather. Be aware of what's happening around you and within you. Don't overload your boat. Do some serious reevaluation of your life, your priorities, the things that bring you pressure, and maybe consider throwing some of them over the side. Consider this as an opportunity to reshape your future. And third, pause to pray. Defeat despair with prayer. Center your mind and your heart on the Lord Jesus. Sense his peace. Let the winds howl, the waves crash. In Christ, there is great quietude. So go deep into him. Plunge into the depths of Christ's love. Feel his peace within. Pray with others. Find your fellowship, your fellows in the same ship. At some point, the storm, friends, it will pass. This coronavirus storm, it is going to pass. The economic storm, it is going to pass. But until that happens, we are all in this together. And God will bring us to safe harbor. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this fellowship that we have, that we are all in the same ship together. And just as you preserve Paul, as you preserve the life of Nathaniel Allen, Lord, we know that you can preserve us in the same way. We can respond to the same isolation, the same problems, with the same resilience that you put into Paul's heart. Lord, may we be able to turn to you be aware of what's happening outside of us and within us. Trust in your providence. Seek you through prayer and encourage others around us until we do find a safe harbor. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.